Hello and welcome to the Oxygen Addict Triathlon Podcast. We're brought to you every week by our sponsors, PrecisionHydration.com. Precision Hydration offer electrolyte drinks in different strengths to match how you sweat. Personalize your hydration strategy today at precisionhydration.com and get a free box or tube of pH worth up to $9.99 using the code OxygenAddict. We're also brought to you by TeamOxygenAddict.com Triathlon Coaching. Helping hundreds of age group triathletes see huge improvements in their 70.3 and Ironman performances. The time training system makes sure that you get the important training done each week in a way that complements the rest of your life. And we're also brought to you by the delicious fueledbycake.com. That would be my charity cake recipe book with loads of delicious recipes, some of which are perfect for making snacks for the bike rides. There are loads of recipes from the likes of Chrissy Wellington, Emma Pooley, Rob's Nan, and many more. You can get yours at fueledbycake.com for just £10 and it all goes to charity. And hello and welcome to the show. It's the week of the 21st of January as we're talking and Hells, I've got good news for you. You tell me. We mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, but I noticed it for the first time last night. Rob's the official days. flag of the days are getting longer. Yes. Yesterday was the first day I was like, it's half four and it's still light. This is, it's on the way. Yes, I noticed that the other day and I thought, oh, it's not yeah. dark now that we're driving down this road at this particular time. Yeah, exactly. Summer's on the, well, not summer's on the way. Of course, we're going to get four weeks of snow having said that now. But keep the faith, everyone. It's on the way. The worst of the you, darkness and the coldness is over, for sure. Are you struggling, Rob, to get up in the mornings at the moment? Or is that just me? Because I am no. a morning person, but honestly, at the moment... <laughs> oh. Hells, I'm right there with you. January is... I'm oh. like Yogi Bear. I'm in the back of the cave, and God help you if you come near me. <laughs> if I can make it out of bed before about quarter to eight during January... Yeah, really? no, exactly. yeah, it's as bad as that. Today I was up, usual time of half six, and I went down and did the usual morning routine. And it was like an hour and 15 minutes before it felt even like it wasn't the middle of the night, you know? It was pitch oh. black outside the kitchen doors. Yes. Oh, yeah, beastly. Okay, I'm glad you said that because honestly, the alarm went off this morning at half six and... I, I I had to not get out of bed. I had to yeah. st- stay in probably till five to seven. And honestly, that is, it's not really like me. And I keep snooze, on thinking, and I wouldn't have hit snooze. I was still awake, but um, I just couldn't, I just couldn't get out of bed. Yeah. It's on Tuesdays uh, at the moment. I, I do PT with someone at half six. So that's good. That gets me up and, it, and it's all fine. And, and I don't know, let's say, probably in the run-up to Christmas I was going to the gym a bit on Mondays just to get so I'd have to get the train at sort of 10 past six and that would be fine and it's almost like if I don't have that first thing to get out of bed for well I'll tell you what I think give yourself give yourself a bit of a break at this time of year because if you are managing to do that even a few days that's awesome but our, our bodies definitely have a natural rhythm to them and they definitely seem to lead to sleeping a bit later during the winter time so if that's the case i think we just treat it like our our lives are cyclical you know or cyclical is that the correct phrase i'm not sure it, it, it sounds like but that's the yeah. other thing in the back of my mind i'm thinking actually it's okay at this yeah. time of year because definitely because you in know, the summer was... you'll be up at half four some days when it gets exactly, light exactly exactly and if i was if i was a tortoise i mean i i always think that um 
I'd clearly be in a box at the moment asleep. You should have a t-shirt with that made on. That should be your winter t-shirt. Maybe if we should get some podcast t-shirts made with that on. If I was a tortoise, I'd be in a box in the back of the wardrobe right now. <laughs> oh, the wisdom of Helen. I love it. I know. Yeah, these brains. <laughs> God. Oh, well, I've had a look around the web, the old tinter web. Not much has happened. I was sounding very northern then, didn't I? Much, not much has happened this weekend in terms of results. In fact, I can't find anything, but we have got some news to talk about. So we'll start off. We'll do a quick shout out to our sponsors, precisionhydration.com. Um, they've got a hydration workshop coming up this week, January the 26th at five o'clock in Chester at Pro Physio. There's going to be discounted sweat testing available all day from nine till four. And all you've got to do is go to the link in the show notes and you can book yourself a slot. So there's all kinds of cool stuff going on there. But if you're anywhere in the area and you can get nearby, first up, I'm sure you'll meet loads of awesome triathletes there. But they put on a really interesting hours presentation about all different manner of, you know, how electrolytes help you and how sweat can damage you in ways that you didn't realize was actually going to damage your performance. So we've both seen it, haven't we, in the past when Johnny came up to Knutsford and it was really good, wasn't it? really really informative and you're sort of sitting there watching it and and interacting as well and you're like oh I didn't know that so yeah you will learn loads and um, you will absolutely improve your knowledge about all things hydration and what they offer that you can help you as well yeah so if we've got any new listeners because we've our listener numbers have seem to have gone through the roof the last couple of weeks which is awesome so if you've not heard of precision hydration go to precisionhydration.com you can take the online sweat test which will give you a lead as to whether you're a particularly heavy or particularly salty sweater both things can be bad for your performance and if that's the case they've got the best electrolyte salts and tablets on the market in my opinion so you can pick yourself up nine pounds 99s worth using the code oxygen addict and that'll get sent to you free which is great you get nine pounds nine. I think you've got to pay the postage, haven't you? Yeah, I think so. So it, basically, it's a risk-free trial of their stuff. It's awesome. It doesn't taste salty like other electrolyte drinks do, and it will solve those those horrible calf cramps in the pool. <laughs> <laughs> do you know, Hells, I was in the pool the other day. I I did the swim after a bike and a run in the gym. Oh, had forgotten my salt tablets with me today, but thought, whatever, I'm going to do it anyway. Here I am at the gym. There's the pool I'm going no. to get in anyway. No. I made it three times 50 meters before getting out with feet <laughs> like gnarled claws. I was like a, I was like an orangutan that had escaped from the jungle. <laughs> I was going to say it's, um, it was not pretty. No, no. At, at, um, at the tri club, we have a spin session and then there is a swim session yeah. afterwards. And, um, yeah, last week we did it in a little January treat. We did an FTP test. Oh, yes, and um, right. yeah, I did say, you know, is anyone going swimming after this one today? And for once, nobody put their hand up. <laughs> They've all learned. Yeah, it'd be particularly brutal, wouldn't it? You've got to give yeah. it a try every time and then go, no, it still doesn't work for me. No. <laughs> still can't swim after training. Oh, good. Right. Let's have a chat about what's been going on around the world in terms of news and, and triathlon from what we found. The first big news is, and we kind of had a bit of a heads up on this already, but everyone else gets to find out now. Outlaw X. Yes. So a new Outlaw Triathlon is going to be coming in September this year. They're going to be celebrating 10 years of Outlaw. So it's a half iron distance race, which is going to be in North Nottinghamshire. Um. 
on the 22nd of September 2019 um, in Thursby Park. Thursby. It looks good, doesn't it? It looks really beautiful. It looks like a really classic English country house kind of place for having a race. Um, So, yeah, good news. Another 70.3 in the UK. So that's three half distance races in the Outlaw series and one full distance race now for them. So very exciting news indeed. So 22nd of September. Check it out over at outlawtriathlon.com. Yeah, and the other thing is that um, entries open on Thursday, the 31st of January to anyone who pre-registers before midnight on January the 30th. So to pre-register, just head to outlawtriathlon.com, go and sign up, and then you can enter officially officially on Thursday, January the 31st. Mm, it wouldn't surprise me if that sells out really quickly as well, like the other races in their series have done, because it'll, be it'll be a good end of season race to do that. And I think the UK is ready for a, another big branded 70.3 around that time, the kind of late season peak or second season, second peak of the season kind of race. I think yeah, that'll be an interesting race. Yeah. And it always, like Outlaw Half Nottingham sells out so, so quickly. That one's sort of the season opener in May, isn't it? And Outlaw full which we have mentioned um that's sold out as well that's at the end of july and hopefully we, we will be there rob yes indeed sure will exciting won't be long now hells till the summer rolls around will it now that we've had rob's official springtime's on the way flag in mid-january for some reason <laughs> it's practically here it's practically here practically here all and, right um, so yeah. next bit of news then with on a on a theme of summer coming around soon and a bit of sunshine is triathlon's million dollar challenge begins in a couple of weeks time at 70.3 dubai where i tell you what a million a million dollars on the line that's that's going to be exciting there's only one person who's won this isn't there in the past yeah daniela reef won it didn't she that the million dollar sort of triple crown the nasa bin hamad triple crown which incorporates 70.3 dubai which is Literally in about a week and a half as we're recording this. First of February, isn't it? I think it's yeah. Yeah. Then the 70.3 World Champs, which this year are in Nice in France on the weekend of the 7th, 8th of September. And then 70.3 Bahrain, which is usually end of November, early December. So in order to win that million dollars, you have to win all of those three races. So it is no easy thing to do at all and that is why um only daniela reef has uh, done it before big old ask that isn't it oh massively to be sort of up and raring to go at this time and continue all throughout the rest of the season yeah. i mean that is pretty much 11 months isn't it i wonder whether there are athletes out there who are looking at that and going i'll make that my that, that's my season's goal having a million dollars on the line compared to I don't know how much you get for winning Cohen or the seventy point three world champs, but I don't think it's more than about hundred and fifty grand, is it, for the win? But so you'd still have to win the world the seventy point three world champs. Yeah. But I don't think <laughs> so. Yeah, you do. You're right. You have to win that on the way. That's a good point. Yeah. So yeah. it's um yeah, it's it's very, very difficult. But Rob, seventy point three Dubai is gonna be 
it's going to be a great race to begin with, isn't it? Um, yeah. Christian Blumenfeld has said that he's going to do it. He won um, Bahrain where he smashed the um, world record, didn't he? Ac- across the That's 7.3 right, yeah. distance, absolutely blitzed it. Um, Ali Brownlee. Yeah, he's confirmed, yeah. isn't he? Yeah, he's confirmed. Um, who else is on that male pro start list? Um, Adam Bodum. Yeah. Um, so then Ronnie Shield Connect, Patrick Nielsen. Is Terenzo on the list? Not at the moment on the one that Ooh. I can see in front of me, but you know, I was just never thinking, say never. Terenzo is always in great form, isn't he, this time of year? Mm. That would be perfect for him. I mean, I know he's probably got his eyes on Kona as well, but. Wouldn't you love to see Ali Brownlee, Christian Blumenfeld and Terenzo going against each other over the 70.3 distance yes. three times in a year? Oh, yes. Great racing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, this this is on the Ironman, um, com sort of website. It's a start list and I imagine that they can still add to it. But these are the names on it at the moment. And on the women's side, Holly Lawrence, who won 70.3 Bahrain as well just at the just end yeah yeah just gone uh, Annie Haug as well who's really doing well since stepping up from the ITU Sarah Lewis too another mean athlete um precision hydration as well sponsor her Angela Nace on there Fenella Language who we've had on the show so yeah it should be yeah, a, you've uh, got the potential for massive head-to-heads in the women's race as well haven't you yeah yeah it's good is Daniela Reef on the list nope oh interesting you go maybe she's maybe she's staying in bed in, in january hells well no I don't, softly I, I, softly cushioned by a mattress filled with a million dollars from three years ago <laughs> well as i say i i don't think that that list is uh, definitive and i think more names will be added mm. to it yeah but those are the names on it at the moment good stuff all right so a little bit more news around the Brownleys, actually. They're both going to be showing up to open the the Triathlon Show London, um, which is going to be awesome, I think. Chance yeah, to go and that's... see those guys open it up. Yeah, so it's the Triathlon and Bike Show, isn't it, in um, in London? Yeah. Which starts at the end of March, so Friday the 29th of March. It's like three days, isn't it? Um, and loads of opportunities to go and, and get involved and, you know, See meet loads of different brands. <laughs> yeah, exactly. See all the new bikes, um, go and meet like-minded people, all that kind of stuff. Um, so, yeah, London Bike Show and the triathlon show london.co.uk. Great stuff. All right, so let's shuffle forwards and let us do our interview of the week. And we've been leading up to this one for a few weeks now. I've had this in the bag for a few weeks. It was great to interview both Phil and Anna. Phil White and Anna DiPiccio have just released a book on the Cervelo story. It's called To Make Athletes Faster. And obviously a lot of people know the name Phil White as one of the two founders alongside Jared Bruman of Cervelo, the bike brand. Um, and his partner, Anna, has produced this book about the story from all the way from starting up the company in the basement of the house at college, all the way through to selling the company a few years ago. So I've always been, I mean, you know this, Hells, don't you? I've always been a massive Cervelo fan. I'm a total fanboy. <laughs> I did the interview with the two of them and I had my bikes in the background of the office so they could see them going, look, I really am a fan. <laughs> So it was it was really interesting to talk to them right from the very 
time I got into triathlon back in 2001, 2002, I always loved the look of Cervelo bikes being slightly different to anything else that was on the market at the time. And um, yeah, it was great to get a chance to get them on the show and interview them. So here we go. Today's interview of the week with Phil White and Anna DiPiccio. Really pleased to have Phil and Anna on the show. It's a real honor to have you two here. We've got, firstly, Phil, obviously founder of Cervelo Bicycles. Anna, I think if we can use the phrase long-suffering, would that be correct? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I think that scores me some points. <laughs> having, having been uh, I think this interview's over. <laughs> <laughs> so having been through the book, I mean, it's amazing that obviously you've, you've been there from the beginning and, and you've written the book, which is essentially the story of Cervelo, but it's so much more than that, isn't it? It's the story of, of friendship and the story of how the company was founded and the story of... I mean, the, the real arc of this is, and I don't think people are going to quite realize this until they hear you tell a story on the podcast, but I was amazed reading the book how this massive company, Cervelo, that, as you've seen, I've got two of your bikes here. They're ridden by all the top pro tour athletes. They're in the Tour de France. You've had world championship victories, Tour de France victories, multiple Ironman victories, was essentially started by two student friends in the basement of a house as a university project. And you've managed to go from from this point all the way through to sort of, I don't think global domination is really is really overstating it. So, <laughs> so congratulations, firstly. Well, thank you, Anna. First up, your mission to write the book. How long did it take you to conceive it and actually and put it together? Because it's it's an amazing story, but it's also you've done a beautiful job of getting illustrated and it's a real sort of coffee table masterpiece anyone who's into bikes or surveillor bikes in particular is really going to love it I think oh thank you it uh, took about three years um, from the moment I got the idea until I hit the print button I spent about uh, six months doing some industry research trying to find an editor I spent about uh, a little over a year interviewing Phil and Gerard, as well as employees, suppliers, athletes, customers. And then it probably took about four months to do final editing and uh, the graphic layout of the book. And have you recovered yet? Have you recovered from the process? Because I think having followed the story in the book, it seemed like you'd all got to the point where you needed a break. And then it suddenly <laughs> occurred did. to me from a creative point of view, you've gone from that needing a break from Cervelo to creating a book, which was probably more work than the original company was. <laughs> you know, it was uh, it was a really enjoyable um, endeavor. It was it was like a passion project. So it uh, it, it was really fun. Um the only thing that was, uh, um, I guess, a little bit challenging was when I actually went to hit the print button. Um, you know, the the uh, everybody told me I'd suffer a bit of artist artist anxiety when I hit the print button, and uh, yeah, they were all right. <laughs> <laughs> so let's go right back then to the to the very origins of this story. Um, where did you guys meet and where did you meet Gerard and, and how did Savela come about in the first place? Well, um, <clears throat> Anna and I, well, you tell the story where we, we knew each other for years. So, um, we had, I'd gone off to uh, Montreal and gone, gone back to McGill. And, um, before that I'd worked in aerospace and gone back to do my masters. Um, Anna and I were already uh, hooked up at that point. 
And um, hooked up. That's a nice word. <laughs> <laughs> I was always already the ball, uh, ball and chain for her uh, oh, at that point. Even more endearing. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's on me, not you. <laughs> Anyways, but um, but you know when I went to McGill, uh, we were in the Jordan. I were in the same composite materials lab, and so we we'd see each other at things and just got chatting. And so I was kind of I knew what he was up to, and uh, and. And then he was telling me one day that, you know, the university wasn't going to pay for uh, making his project, which he needed to do to get his master's. And um, and they weren't going to give him any any lab space to do it either. And I said, well, I'll give you I'll give you a hand. I got nothing to do for the summer. So well, where are we going to do it? I'll throw in a few hundred bucks and, you know, how much can it cost to, to make a prototype? And um, so we figured out the best way to do it was in the basement of where he was living. Uh, it was um, a house that was, I guess it probably had six or seven students in it and was owned by one of the, someone whose son was actually at university there. So the son was kind of the landlord. Um, so we had to, uh, we started off doing it there and made a mess and they complained. And so we started doing it kind of when they went out to school, we'd sneak in the basement and, and make things in, you know, epoxy. And so we were, They'd see us with masks on and, and kind of go, that stuff's so toxic. Why are you doing it in our basement? So we just stopped doing it when they were around, when they weren't around. And, and we'd cure stuff in the oven when they weren't around. And we'd have make sure we had the oven cleared out by the time that they were doing their lasagna in it for dinner. So, uh, but uh, yeah, it was like, yeah, it was cheap. I mean, it, when you start something, you got to figure out ways to do it for nothing. So that was the way we started. So basically, the, the first bike that what became the Cervelo prototype bike was essentially made in the basement. It was cured in the oven of the house that you were living in and put together that way. And, and that was the basis for starting the company, right? Yes. <laughs> I love this. Because, <laughs> again, the, the thing that the book really gets across is I think anyone who's tried to start any kind of business, you go through this phase of um, – of feeling like an imposter and thinking that everybody else knows what they're doing and everybody else is a legitimate company and, and you guys are just kind of making it up as you go along. But at every step in the process in this book, you've really gone into kind of warts and all here, Anna, about how, you know, you make, you make this bike and then the guy won't give it you until you pay him X amount of money and he turns up with two heavies and demands his money because he wants it now. And it, it really was every step along the way. You've had to battle for this, haven't you? Nothing got given to you. At any at any stage, it seems without massive amounts of almost things going wrong. <laughs> yeah, some things went, <laughs> went really wrong on the way on the way along. I mean, but I mean, it's just perseverance. I mean, someone said I was reading a quote someone recently, and they said, you know, like how many great projects were never launched because they stopped just before the line. You know, they just pushed a little bit harder, and they would actually got it over the line and would have been become a great project. So we just kind of kept grinding um and just kept going at it I, I i don't know where we got that from but yeah we certainly gerard and i and anna to a certain extent also just kind of we just had that just keep grinding and we'll eventually triumph so that first prototype that you came up with which i believe you titled was it the baracci is that the correct pronunciation baracci yeah baracci okay two things about this the first thing is it's an amazingly beautiful looking machine for anyone who hasn't seen it it was it was so different to anything bicycle looking that was around at the time with it not having a seat tube on. Did you, as you were making these bits and bobs out of out of carbon fiber and putting them in the oven to cook, 
did you did you have worries it was actually going to support somebody's weight as you put it together that's the first part of the question it's it was so radical looking how was the process of actually getting on it for the first time well you know jordan and i or jen jordan had done the calculations on on uh the loads in the carbon and uh you know as you put it together you you do it out and then we got to a point where it was it had the appropriate amount of carbon on it and we looked at each other and said you gonna ride that like <laughs> Maybe you're going to ride it first. And it's like, I'm not riding that. That's way too late. So uh, so we added a couple more layers because we <laughs> didn't trust our own calculations, <laughs> which was probably <laughs> probably smart. Um, we never did have any problems with it. it. It came out a bit heavy, but it was certainly stiff and uh, and strong. And then in the early days, you tell a great story in here about how you tried to get Gianni Bunyo to ride it. Yeah. Tell, yeah, tell, uh, tell the listeners how, how you actually got the word to him that you wanted him to have a go. Well, actually, uh, Gerard, uh, Gerard was a huge Buño fan, and um, he'd had this idea that we could make a – it was his concept of a faster TT bike. And so he wanted to get a hold of Buño because he looked at it and said, we can make this guy faster. And uh, so this is pre-internet days, and so how do you get a hold of some guy somewhere in Italy? Um so he just, you know, Bunio is a pretty big celebrity, a double world champion. So he just took a letter, you know, with an envelope and wrote Gianni Bunio, Italy, <laughs> and stuck it in the post. And it got to him. <laughs> and, uh, you know, Bunio was pretty supportive and their team was super supportive. They sent a bunch of wheels and equipment and stuff to uh, for us to, to build. So you see the wheels on the bike. Um probably the other some of the other components as well those all came from um from their team uh to support us in the development of that bike so they were really supportive uh their sponsor was a little less interested as in not at all um and uh, that's kind of where it fell apart but you know certainly the team and Bunya were super supportive of it and yeah. that was like you know that's the that was what carried us through in the early days is like how cool is it to make a a bike for a double world champion it's like you know there's two kids in university, man. This is the best thing ever. <laughs> and then at some point you guys decided to pivot. You, you decided to kind of move away from the carbon fiber and, and start trying to build something that would be a bit more commercially useful or not commercially useful, but commercially viable and, and build things out of aluminum tubing. But you didn't use round tubing. That was a, that was a massive step forward, wasn't it, for the, for the cycling industry, it sounds like, at the time. And, and especially a lot of the Italian um, bike manufacturers it sounds like wouldn't even consider bikes made out of tubing that wasn't round was that your experience at the time yeah well, we didn't really understand that uh very tradition driven uh culture of cycling especially in those days um and so it just seemed obvious to us that if you can make someone faster why would you not do it but we didn't understand that that culture and everything that was behind it so we just uh, said well, how do we make some people faster? And we said, well, we can use aluminum because we can make uh, better shapes in it. And, uh, and it's still going to be light. Um, and so we went and did our own tubes. And everyone thought that we were nuts. But, you know, at that point, I mean, people were making sort of aero tubes. They were just taking a round tube and squashing it. And uh, we said, well, why don't we just, uh, you know, make our own tubes? We'll just pay for the dye and extrude them. And at that point, a dye was, I think, was 800 or $1,000. So, you know, it was pretty trivial. And then you run your own tubes and you had your own shapes that were better. And we put 
material on the side because as you're crushing the two, we're making it narrower, it gets uh, less stiff that way. So we said, we'll stiffen it up by putting more material on the sides, which we called smart wall. Um, Easton had this, uh, 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 what do they have it? They called, they had some term for their budding. Um, and we looked at it and we said, yeah, it's really just paper wall and all the materials in the, was designed for bad welding. And we said, we're just going to do good welding. We won't need all this budding at the ends. Um, we'll put the material on the sides where it's going to make it stiffer. And so we just made our own tubes. It was easier and cheaper and we got better tubes out of it. And that's how we were able to start our own, uh, our, our own, uh, you know, bike in aluminum. But the tough part was finding someone that would actually weld it together. Uh, because in those days, the concept of kind of virtual manufacturing where you would, you know, someone, we didn't own any equipment and it was really weird. It was hard to find someone. The banks looked at us and said, hang on, let me get it. You're a manufacturer, but you don't make anything. And we go, yep, that's exactly it. And uh, so it was a tough sell. Banks didn't want anything to do with us um, because they had no, we had no assets that they could tie a loan to. Um, and it was tough to find someone that was willing to do that for us. But we did eventually find a company, uh, Da Vinci, uh, which is uh, north of Quebec City. Uh, so it's about uh, six or eight hours from Montreal. Um, and they're still around today doing really well. They make the majority of the Bixie bikes. Uh, yeah. Well-established brand. Um, anyways, they were super supportive of uh, doing those bikes for us. So you guys are, you were really way, way ahead of your time in terms of, if you look around now, there's, there's so many companies on the internet who design something and outsource the production somewhere else. You guys were, I don't know whether you were the first, but you were certainly looking back, you were way ahead of your time in terms of thinking, well, we can design this. We don't have to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars having all the equipment to make it. We can get someone else to produce it for us. Yeah, I mean, it was a it was a, a model that we had that you know we said, well, how how can you invest in you know tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars in all this equipment and leave it idle for you know eighty percent of the time uh, because we weren't making we weren't selling much you know at the, the start we were selling almost nothing so um, why would you waste your money it's just sitting there just burning uh, burning dollars and we had very very few dollars so. Uh, let's spend them where they're, they make the most sense. And we looked at it and we said, you know, okay, we could weld, but I mean, you really wouldn't want to buy a frame that I'd welded together. <laughs> um, so our, our strength was really in, in, uh, in, in the engineering side of it. And to a certain extent in the, as we learned over time in the marketing side, we could do a bit, pretty good job selling it because we could tell a really authentic story about the engineering behind it. Yeah. Anna, what was your, what was your take on this as, as this, project went from something that started in the basement as a university master's project to something where we're going to try and make a couple of bike frames for a world champion to now we're going to start a bike brand. How, how was that experience for you all the way through? Well, it was, uh, it was really exciting. Um, I had a business background, so this was, uh, <clears throat> you know, this is uh, any business student's dream. Right. And, um, I always prepared myself for the worst, though, because I didn't anticipate Phil. Phil called me um, uh, just about when he was going to finish his semester, and he said, uh, "Hey, Anna, I got some great news." <coughs> and I thought, "Great, he's got a really good job." <laughs> <laughs> I said, "Well, you know that bike project that Jared and I were working on," and then I thought, "Oh, here it comes." We're going to start a bike company. 
She thought we were nuts. (laughs) That's a short story. Well, I was a commercial lender at the time, so I I knew the the, the challenges that they were up against. Um, I did think it was an exciting opportunity. But um, for the first five years in Canada anyways, the, the, the failure of probability is roughly 50-50. So I thought, okay, well, we have to prepare ourselves for a worst case scenario. So one of the things that we planned was uh, um, I would continue to have an outside salary. So worst case scenario, we had my outside salary. And um, the moment that... that um, I guess was awe-inspiring for me was when they actually uh, got their their commercial space for the first time. I remember walking around in the warehouse thinking, wow, look at all this inventory. And it was all neatly stacked and arranged and they had a little section for the assembly and they had their own office space. And I just remember walking around thinking, I don't know how they lived out of the house all this time. And at that moment, I thought, wow, these, these guys have got a business. It's, it's going to happen. But, you know, this is really funny because I think people listening are going to go, well, of course they've got a warehouse. This is Velo. They're the biggest triathlon brand in the world, and they've, they've won the Tour de France. And, of course, your book walks, walks through this situation where you would come home and open the door and, and your house was literally jammed from top to bottom <laughs> with, with bike frames and boxes, and you couldn't get in through the doors and – it it really was like this this scrappy startup the whole way through and and you do a great job of talking the the reader through sort of like year one I, I forget the exact numbers but it it almost seems like the turnover starts at almost nothing but it it doubles every year and it goes from a few thousand dollars to fifty thousand to a hundred two hundred four hundred and then you get an and it keeps doubling even as you get to yeah. the millions and you think well. We know that story now, this this enormous slick marketing machine that produces these incredible bikes. But right the way back in the beginning, it must have been it must have been amazing to get the first what was the first P2 in aluminium and have it painted up and take it to a show and have people buy it. And then to go from that to build it into a what the brand became eventually. It's it's just an amazing story. Yeah, yeah, it certainly is. <laughs> you know, you know, people people ask me about that. Like, is, is how do you feel about that? And you know, when you're in the trenches, just grinding away and just trying to get out stuff, which we were always late for. We never had financing. It was just, you know, you didn't really notice it growing. It just got there's more more to do, and you you just kind of get working on it all the time. I don't think you really notice it the same way when you're right in the middle of it. It's probably quite a bit different from the outside. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, two things struck me. That the first thing is when you when you had that first aluminium P two, it's how similar it looked to the one you ended up producing in carbon. What was originally the P two C? It it was a really slick looking bike. I mean, the the P two was kind of an iconic bike, and then the P three was an even more iconic bike. But that very first aluminium P two. Is almost it almost looks exactly the same as that carbon P two did, and that must have been like looked like nothing else around at the time back in the what would that have been the late nineties probably? Yeah, I guess we launched that in yeah ninety six, um, and wow, yeah, it was, it was quite different uh, at that point. Really, it was us and uh, and Project ninety six in the states uh, that were doing that, but you know we. Before we went to the and started to make anything, we'd been to the tunnel, uh, wind tunnel, a bunch of times. There used to be this 
a group of people over over uh, New Year's that used to go to Texas A&M in, in College Station, Texas. And there was all these people that no one had. a Well, actually, there was one that was Steve Head was kind of uh, the leader of it. And he kind of bankrolled a lot of that. But it was just a bunch of Steve's friends and hangers honors that we'd bring stuff down through it in the wind tunnel. And then we'd go to Applebee's afterwards and and look at the results and compare things like what worked, what didn't. And it was just a really fun time for a bunch of engineering geeks. And um, so, you know, we'd, we'd learned a lot before we ever put pen to paper on on our first commercial design. And that was, you know, it gave us a huge advantage. But, we, you know, the, the reason it looked the same is because we'd sorted out, like, the big things that really made a big difference was that rear wheel cutout, like protecting that or fairing the rear wheel. And um, so, yeah, we, we learned that was super important, and that was a big part of every design that we ever did. Is yeah. just maximizing the, the amount of fairing effect we could get on the on the rear wheel. Well, you guys were also really ahead of the curve in terms of in terms of focusing on bikes for triathletes back in the, in a day when there was there was really nobody else doing that apart from maybe arguably Quintana Roo, where you know um, Dan Anfield was was really into making bikes specifically for triathletes as well. And the, and obviously with the benefit of hindsight, with triathlon having exploded, you know, you guys were perfectly placed for that. But it strikes me that there was a tremendous amount of vision there on your part to think there's there's enough of a market there for us to build a, a brand around a sort of triathlon-specific time trial bike. Was that something that you deliberately went after back in the, the sort of mid-90s, the time trial market? Well, we yeah, we started off making that time trial bike for Buño. And then we started looking around to see, you know, how many uh, how many of these could we sell? And pretty clearly, uh, the answer came back quite quickly that, like, the answer was almost none. <laughs> it's like, uh, you know, time trellis, uh, there weren't very many of them, and they generally got a, a free bike because they were on a team. Um, there just wasn't. There were a couple of uh, areas like Southern California. There was a, a really well-developed time trial uh, market or time trial group of people. But there wasn't really going to be much of a market there. And at just the same time, one of my uh, uh, friends from university was a pro triathlete. And he was saying, you know, you should sell these to triathletes. They'd be all over this. You know, they were always trying to do in, to go faster. And so it was like, oh, hang on. First of all, here's someone that's looking to go faster, which is what we were all about. Yeah. And they were, had no preconceived notions of what a bike was. So if you go back to the early days of triathlon, they would ride the craziest, wildest designs, even if they didn't work. Everyone was just constantly searching for something that would work faster, whereas the cycling community was totally tradition-bound and wouldn't take anything that wasn't, you know, a Philip raised uh, or maybe not Philip raised, but, you know, a, but a steel round tube, tube, round tube frame made in Italy or maybe France and maybe the UK. I mean, those are the three hotbeds of it. So, I mean, they just didn't want to touch it because it was a weird bike. Um, and these, and whereas the triathlete who a, had more money, wanted to buy it and would try anything, it was quite obviously the, the best spot to focus our time. I tell a great story about um, you guys going to Ironman Canada and not being allowed into the official race expo and basically setting your stall up in the street. Will you tell that story for the, tell a story for the listeners? <laughs> Well, it was uh, it was Gerard actually that went out to that because we used to split every year, and I would go to Mrs. T's in Chicago, and he would go to Ironman Canada. But yeah, we would we got used to in the early days. One of the only thing we really did for marketing was uh, going to events. So we found that 
you know, it was an educational process. We would talk to customers or potential customers about why our bike was faster. Um, and uh, you could show it to them and they could take it for a test ride. And we realized early on that, you know, our bike was significantly different and it felt faster. People could take it out for a quick spin and they would go, yeah, I get it. This bike is just faster. I, I already get it. And um, so it was just a natural extension. We were doing a lot in southern Ontario, uh, around, around Toronto in in that and uh, a bunch of our friends were going out and doing um and doing ironman canada and and we had one of our retailers exhibiting there so we just said we'll go out and that was kind of typically how we did it we'd kind of go out and just sort it out when we got there <laughs> and uh so gerard just sorted it out and it was phenomenally successful i mean i think he had the number of people he set up on bikes like just uh like the day or two days before ironman this is this is the this is the race that you've trained all season for, and you're gonna swap your bike the day before to a completely different bike in a completely different position. <laughs> we always just looked at them. Are you really sure you're doing this? But they almost all of them came back and set like massively better PBs, and you kind of go, "There's something to this," and people would just get it and they go, "Yeah, I'll buy that one when I leave here," because yeah. it was you know more comfortable and way faster. And then there's that great story about how like any any of the stock that was left over he kind of said i don't want to i don't want to bring this back and i don't want to have to stick it back in the car and what did he do go and find a go and find a bike shop on the main street and offer them to sell them all the kit that was left yeah it was uh, a <laughs> he basically did you know like they'd seen that you know the bikes were moving but they had no intention i don't think of buying all those bikes but uh george said he just sat there and, and waited for didn't say anything and waited for them he made him an offer and just waited until they uh, said something and he was just sweating it out because we were that was our that was our funding for the next two months so if we didn't sell them we were going to be well we were already eating like ramen noodles and 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 bread but uh i think we would have been maybe even dry ramen noodles or whatever whatever <laughs> we, there would have been much less to eat if we hadn't sold those bikes again all the way through this book i'm, I'm really struck by and again anna it's credit to you to how you've written this you really feel as though you're, you're in this adventure with you guys as you go along about how it really was like a hand-to-mouth existence we've got to sell four bikes today because there's no money to pay the guy who's made the tubes for us six months ago and 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 it really was like a process of you were really driven to do it and how it was the three of you on the phones making cold calls to bike shops, seeing if they would take some of your, take some of your frames off your hands. Essentially, it's it's incredible all the way through how that becomes the Cervelo brand that we know today. Yeah, I mean, there was a lot of like you know, Jordan and I we used to sit there right at the start with one phone between us, you know, one of the old <laughs> dial phones, and and uh, and we. He'd push it over to me, and I go, "Oh crap, it's my turn." <laughs> you'd make a call, and you get blown off, and you'd go, "Ah, now it's your turn." And you'd and you sit there listening to the other guy, and you'd learn, okay, what worked, what didn't, and just having someone there was the motivation you needed because you never would do it on your own because it was just hell. Like we both hated it, and we weren't very good at it, but we knew you had to do it. So you know, it was much easier if you could sit there with. A partner to share your misery <laughs> and uh so just like we'd pass it back and forth and you know every once in a while you you talk to someone they go oh yeah that's pretty good i didn't know what you were doing that now like uh tell me more about that and you go and you'd start you get into your spiel and they go who what's, what's your name you go i'm phil white and they go oh i thought it was phil wood sorry not interested slam <laughs> it's like ah and one time gerard got it and someone thought he was ben serrata 
And they were super excited until they found out he wasn't Ben Serrata. And then it was like, ah, sorry. (laughs) I'm not sure any of our uh, cold calls actually worked. Um, I think what really worked was uh, selling to to triathletes and having them go out as apostles for us. And uh, they would demand or they would convince their friends to ride it and loan out their bikes. And their friends would go into the local bike shop and the the local bike shop would try and sell them a a trek or a specialized and they go no no i want a cervello and they'd force the uh, the shop to go and order cervello for them and uh and that was how we kind of made yeah. our foray the shops it was really consumer driven how big was it for you guys when chrissy wellington won kona in 2007 wasn't it 2007 she won kona for the first time how big was that for you did you see a a big jump in interest because obviously by then you're really well established and you've already sponsored um, the Tour de France team CSC at this point. Did you see a big jump in interest after that, or by then had things taken over with the road scene as well? You know, it's the problem with marketing is you never know what's really working and what's not. Um, but uh, we've been struggling to find uh, good athletes all the way along, and um, you know, and that was she was a spectacularly good athlete and also a spectacularly good spokesman for the brand. And for triathlon in general, I mean, even now she's got a massive following. Um, so yeah, it was huge for us, and we really um, we really appreciated that. And I think a lot of other brands um, were more um, they sold, sold sold more to males, and Chrissy and the luck we had with women um, on her team really pushed us into uh, into the female market, and we were pretty much evenly split. <laughs> Male, female, and if you look at the ratio in triathlon, um, it's more male dominated. So we did very, very well in the women's market, and we really focused on that by making bikes that were that fit smaller people uh, better. So I think mm-hmm. Chrissy really pushed that side of it for us. Um, but just as you're right, I mean, we had pretty good visibility in the market, but certainly she really kind of put us uh, into the next level. And um, this is going to be my last question around bikes specifically, but looking at the old pictures of the Baraki against what became the P5X, there's, was, the, was there a small part of you and Gerard and you, Anna, that you were kind of like, one day we're going to, we're going to get something like the original bike into production to get, to get people on something like the original Baraki? Was there something, because, I mean, there's more than a passing resemblance between the two bikes, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I think, um, you know, we, the, the original Baraki was a product of the time. We didn't have, you know, really good CFD. There was a lot of trial and error in doing it. Um, you know, when you, if you did it again, you would do things differently. Plus, I guess we've got 20 years of knowledge on how to make the Baraki faster. Um, I think the big advantage for the, uh, or the big advance for the P5X was all that internal storage. So you had nothing hanging out in the wind and we've been trying to work we've been working on that ever since the p4 so you see we have more and more integration um and i think we kind of really started that thing we were looking at where do we hide the uh the the original thing was the water bottles where do we put it and so we put a a big tank on the top tube that didn't really work that well and we never uh and so we found actually the best thing was putting your bottle between your arms um and even when it's empty put it between your arms because it's still help smooth the airflow off your arms or off your hands. Um, and uh, But the other elements of that, they really carried that to the next level in the P5X. 
And um, so I think it's a it's a good bike from from that standpoint. Um, yeah, I guess a lot of people looked at that and the Diamondback and said, hey, that harkens back to the uh, the Baraki for sure. And then all the way all the way along through the story of Savela, that there seems to be. I don't know. Maybe this is maybe this is my mindset, but it seemed like there were there were forces working against you from from the big banks, and and almost every turn, Anna, you tell a story where somebody doesn't give you the money they've promised you, and oh, all of a sudden, well, we're going to stop this loan from this bank, and we're going to bring in a team of independent finances, and they're going to take over and give you this, and. Did it feel like that along the way that, that there were forces working against you in the banking world to try and to try and kind of lever Tavela out of your hands and into the arms of a like a bigger financial institution? Mm. I think cash flow um, <clears throat> was always a, a challenge for Cervello just because they started off so lean yeah. and uh, they just continued that kind of um, model. Um, and of course the, the Banks are always very conservative, um, and you know the inventory wasn't something that you know banks appreciated. Yeah, uh, I don't. I don't know. I wouldn't say that there were forces um, uh, uh, playing against Cervello, but um, I'm being a bit I dramatic, said, aren't I? <laughs> I uh, <laughs> yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't that dramatic, but. I, de- I definitely think cash flow was always a, a challenge, and um, in retrospect, we, you know, our, our wisdom is that we probably should have got an equity partner into the business sooner, um, just to provide that uh, that kind of stability. But um, the real the real financial challenge came when uh, Phil and Gerard started the Cervello test team. And at the same time that that they were trying to find a title sponsor was the time of the financial crash in the 2008-2009 era. Um, So that was really, uh, that really caused uh, some big financial issues. Perfect, perfect timing to start your own Tour de France team, hey? Yeah, Yeah, brilliant. So how how great was it for you guys when you saw Carlos Sastre win the Tour de France riding your bikes? Was was that for you kind of a yes moment? Yeah, that was that was phenomenal. I mean, we were <clears throat> CSC uh, or uh, Bjorn Rees set us up with uh, seats right on the finish line um, for that for that event, uh, like on the Champs Elysees, and so we were right there. And he rolled over the finish line and then came to see us and. There's a video we have somewhere, and, I, and, I, and I'm hugging him. I'm so hard, I just put, ripped his neck off. I was like, <laughs> I just couldn't believe that we were finally there. Um, that was that was amazing. I mean, just to to sit there and see him. I mean, we were sitting. Gerard and I were following him all the way through. Obviously, we were at the at the tour, and we took our employees over uh, that year. Um, and then we had a team building on Alpe d'Huez, and of course, Carlos wins the day on Alpe d'Huez. It's like the stage in Alpe d'Huez, that was phenomenal. And then we go on to Paris and so we were sitting in a cafe in Paris watching the time trial and just, just biting our nails like the day before. <laughs> I was like, is he going to hold it? Cause he wasn't, no one was a great time trialist, but you know, the yellow Jersey gives you minutes and uh, that's clearly what it gave him that day. And then watching the, the ride into Paris was just, yeah, it was certainly one of the best days of my life. Oh, wow. That's incredible. 
Hey, and listen, then finally, just to wrap this interview up, the, the triathletes and time trialists listening would kill me if I missed the opportunity to ask <laughs> probably the foremost aerodynamicist in the world, like, how, how do we get faster? What can we do? What's the low-hanging fruit? After all your hundreds of hours in the wind tunnel and CFD, what can they do firstly with the stuff they've got already to get faster and then talk them through which Svelo bike they should buy in order to get faster? <laughs> Oh, it's easy. I mean, it's, the first thing is take all your equipment, sell it, and buy a Cervelo. <laughs> uh, no, hey, I mean, work for me. After you've done that, <laughs> I mean, um, the, the nice thing about uh, disc wheels is um, is that they allow you to run a deep, uh, deep carbon rim all year round in any conditions, training and racing, whether it's wet or dry out, and you never have to worry about your braking. And the reason that's important, A, is because it's the deep carbon wheels are always faster. Uh, I'm a big fan of the head vanquish. I just came back from the wind tunnel uh, last two weeks ago, and that is a wicked fast wheel. Um, but run as deep a wheel as you, as you feel confident in running. And the nice thing is if you're going out and training on it all the time, you'll get used to it. Anyone can run a 40-millimeter front almost under any conditions. Um, I'm totally convinced of that. Anyone can do that. Um, run a deeper rear wheel because you can. You don't feel it. It doesn't push your your steering around. Um, you can run at least a 60. Um, so run the deepest uh, wheels you can and, and run them all the time. So you're used to it all the time training on it. And then then when you have a go to a race, you're not worried about the race wheels. You're not worried about getting a separate set of wheels there. You're just racing and training all the time. You'll be much more comfortable and you'll be faster on it. So that that's the thing on wheels and of course the disc wheel. Uh, the braking actually works, which is kind of novel. Um, and if you ever go down a hill in wet weather in the Alps or something on rim brakes and then do the same thing on disc brakes, you'll thank me for telling you to get disc brakes. Yeah. Um, so that you know, disc brakes open up better braking, but also the opportunity to run one set of wheels uh, and run them all the time. So that's uh, an easy way to get faster. And then, yeah, I mean, just playing with your position, uh, especially the position of your hands, um, you know, I mean, you see, have a look at what the guys on the track are doing. Uh, they're, they're really pushing the limits on it and have a look and see how they're positioning their hands and their, uh, with respect to their, the front. And, uh, you can learn something from them for sure. Awesome. Great. Hey, well, listen, thank you so much for taking the time to come on and do the interview with us. It's, it's super great for me as a massive fan of Savailo to talk to you. Um, Anna, you've done a wonderful job on this book. As I said to you before the interview, I've, I've read it once all the way through and I'm on my second time through now. And you, you, a fantastic storyteller that goes into loads of detail. And there's so many funny stories in here that we haven't had a chance to get into even on the podcast, unfortunately, because half an hour goes by in a click of a finger, it seems like. But thanks very much again for your time. And um, the last thing to tie up, now you're out of Cervelo. What are you doing now? What are the plans do you have anything else bike related in the in the mix, or is it is that it for one lifetime? <laughs> no, I got a bunch of a uh, bunch of things in the mix. I'm doing some consulting on uh, on some uh, high performance bikes, um, and I'm doing. I'm really interested in mobility and how do we move people faster. And um, so, two elements of that. One is how do we take a an e bike a drive system and take half the weight out of it. And the other thing is all of these things about uh, you know. Uh, e-bikes and different types of e-bikes different types of mobility whether it's a scooter or a bike or electric scooter or a push scooter 
or a three-wheeler or whatever, they all have an element of electronics in them. And uh, I've been working with some companies on on that, you know, that the common electronics needed to manage and control uh, data and communications on the bike. So I think there's going to be some really interesting innovations coming along there in the next little bit. Interesting. All right, listen, thank you both so much for your time, and I hope we can talk again soon. Thank Pleasure. You. Thanks very much. Really cool. I love that, Hells. It's not, not often you get a chance to talk to your heroes, is it? <laughs> no, really not very often um, at all. So, yeah, it's good to get like an insight. And, and I always like the stories of people who start the businesses, you know, in their kitchen or in their garage yeah. or whatever, and then go on and be really, really successful with it. It's ace to know, isn't it, that, that you can really genuinely do something like that. You can start a bike brand in your in your basement as a college project and it can go on to be a massive part of everyone's endurance heritage essentially um and more than anything i mean i've I've got the chance to have read this book and all the way through it's a real lesson in how i think if anyone's starting up a business you tend to assume that everybody else knows what they're doing and you don't but this book is a real a real lesson in like probably nobody really knows what they're doing along the way everyone's just fumbling along and you know, turning up to a bike show with bikes in the back of a car and then trying to sell them after the expo so they don't have to take them back. It's really, really cool. Um, So anyway, the cool news is they gave us this copy of the book. We've got the copy of the book to give away to a listener. And we said all the way through January, we're going to basically as a thanks to anyone who's left a review of the show on iTunes, we're going to pull names into the hat and pull a name out. So we've still got about nine days left in January. So what we'd like you to do is leave a review of the show on iTunes, please. And then post a screenshot of the review on the thread in the Genetic Triathlon Facebook group. Then you'll get into this prize draw to win a copy of the book. If you're not already a member, join the group anyway. And do you know, Hell, since last week, we've had 10 more five-star reviews on iTunes, which is super awesome. That so, is, but yeah, lots of um, nice people writing nice things about it. Yeah, it's really, it's really sweet, actually. I'm trying to get my copy of iTunes open at the moment so I can give people a name check, actually. Have you got yours open there at the moment? Yeah, Lanny Lad, GJV22, Nicola Goodwin, um, Macam21, Escape EDI, and uh, By Will, Phil Jeffries, Coxie, and Joanna Hans. Brilliant. Nice one. Nice one. We're having the thing up on the screen there, Hells. Love it. And thank <laughs> you very much for everyone who's left reviews for us. We really appreciate it. Basically, what happens is the reviews are the thing that iTunes use to to determine whether people see your show or not when when you search for triathlon podcast in iTunes, which is why it's such a big deal to us. So if you can find a minute or two to leave a review for us, that would be super awesome. So you've got about nine days left to get on there. Enter that to be in the prize draw to win a copy of the book, The Svelo Story. It is totally gorgeous. It's a beautiful coffee table book and it's well worth having, especially if you're a bike geek like me. So get on there, leave a review and post the screenshot up in the OATC group on Facebook. Um, Rob, awesome. can I can I say something which will uh, make you laugh? Make you laugh. Have you ever binge watched a um, I don't know, like a Netflix series or or something like that? Do you know, Hells, I'm currently binge watching Modern Family as we speak. Oh, yeah. Is it is it worth binge watching? Have you never seen it? No. Oh, Hells, Modern oh, Family is oh. is the it's like the Friends of the Next Generation. It's as good as that. It's really, really funny. Oh, if I've okay. if I've just introduced you to Modern Family, 
Again, I am, you have. This is my, and, and maybe who knows, however many thousand people around the world who might not have seen it as well. There's about eight series of it out. It's brilliant. Okay. So when you binge watch, how yeah. many might you watch in a in a week? Uh, I don't watch a huge amount of TV, so binge watching for me is probably one episode a night. <laughs> okay. One episode a night. Okay. So seven. Yeah. Okay. Fine. So, yeah, it's sort of on a part. Macam21 uh, said, currently catching up and have listened to five episodes in a week. So he's oh, pinge listening to the Oxygen Addict Triathlon podcast. That's good going. I'm impressive. Yeah. And uh, and I like this as well from Lanny Lad, who said, uh, my favourite interview was with Mark Allen, who underlined the deeper magic of triathlon as a transformative life pursuit. Oh, that's a good interview. Talking to yeah. Mark, he was really good because only half of it was about triathlon, wasn't it? The other half of it was all about balancing life, life and his spiritual practice and stuff. Yeah. 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 Really very, very insightful. Do you know, I'm thinking about going on another one of their retreats next year. Do you mean this year or genuinely next year? Next year. It's 2020? In 2020, yeah. They do do like a six-day retreat to Mount Shasta. And I've always wanted to go there. So. Do it. Yeah. Just hit that enter button, Rob. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I've managed not to enter anything else at the moment this week, but I did hit by on um, some flights to the, um, you know, warmer climbs. Oh, really? Where to? Sardinia. Nice. When are you going there? June. Brilliant. Is With there a bikes. race attached or is it? No another, race attached, but we are taking bikes. and Helen, um, and Helen plus man epic adventure. Yeah, we might chill. We might... We're not going to kill ourselves doing 100-mile days this year, she says right now. No, <laughs> we're not going to. That's we're, not like you. No, I know. We we don't have plans to ride around the whole of Sardinia because Sardinia is actually quite big and we don't have sort of two and a half weeks like we had the other year and we don't. We genuinely don't want to go and, um, I don't know, it's amazing, but yeah. it's quite tiring as well when you do that. So, um, yeah, we're, we are taking bikes and, um, Rob, this is just, ridiculous which is why i was like oh my god i'm buying them uh 60 pounds return wow yeah bargain hunter bargain hunter the bikes obviously cost more the bikes uh, cost... The bikes cost more than you to fly there don't they that's Correct. the great irony of it but not for 150 pounds return yeah with including your bike and a bit of sun yeah that's i agree bad, is it yeah okay. i think I, I got a similar kind of deal on the flights to fuerty Yeah, if you can get yourself out there in the wintertime, it makes a big difference, doesn't it? So excited. Yeah, Yeah, so excited. Right. Coach's Couch. We've had a question from Will Pither. Who says, on the bike, is a road bike okay? Can anything be tweaked to make it better or faster? Great question. And a load of things have popped up over the last couple of weeks in our Facebook community group around this, this whole kind of idea of can you talk a little bit to the people who are beginners and who are doing their first season of triathlon coming up? Because it's all very well talking about, you know, the tiny details of FTP testing and things, but let's talk about the generalities of stuff. So first up, Will, great question. Thanks for sending it in. Yes. Riding a road bike is totally, totally fine in a race. And if it's, especially if it's your first season of triathlon or even if it's not, 
if you get yourself a nice road bike, there's absolutely no reason that you can't ride that in all your triathlons. Now, you're probably going to go a little bit faster on a time trial bike than you will on a road bike, but that's not to say you can't do things to your road bike in order to make yourself get a bit of I'm going to use the phrase free speed hells, but I don't think the word free is in the correct context here, is it? <laughs> no. We call it expensive speed, shouldn't we? Yes. So you can you can buy stuff to make your bike faster and we'll call it free speed to make ourselves feel better about it. So yes. the things that you can change on your road bike, the first thing I would say is think about your body before you think about your bike. So by simply having tight fitting clothing on, a tri suit or a skin suit type suit rather than just a t-shirt and shorts or even baggy cycling clothing, that's going to be the first thing that's going to make you faster because the aerodynamic drag from you and your clothes is much greater than the drag off your bike. So tight fitting tri suit first thing. And then the next thing to think about is getting a pair of clip on aero bars for your road bike. That'll really help improve your bike position, get you down out of the wind. And again, you're the biggest thing that's creating aerodynamic drag there. So by bending over at the waist and getting you a bit lower massively reduces that aerodynamic drag. So they're two really big wins. And then if you want to tweak your bike and you really want to start spending money, the next thing you can look at doing is getting a pair of aerodynamic wheels. So anything in the realm of 40 to 60 millimeters tends to be the sweet spot for people where you don't get your bike handling affected very much, if at all, but they do make a significant difference to your speed. So you're talking anything up to two kilometers an hour faster with the right pair of wheels on a day that's not too windy just for changing your wheels. Um, so they're the, they're the big things I would say that are going to be the, the things you can tweak to make yourself faster. It's a skin suit, it's aero bars, and maybe a set of more expensive wheels. But just think in terms of how much money have I got to spend? Do I really, is, is the overall race result actually going to be that important to me? And how close to the point end of the field am I? Because I raced, uh, do you remember I did that Lakesman half last year, Hells? Yeah. One of the guys who finished top three overall came by me on a road bike with no aerodynamic wheels. And he came by me like I was standing still, like he'd been launched from a rocket. And I just thought, wow, <laughs> look how fast yeah. that guy's going. And he's relatively new to the sport, super fit, fell runner, just borrowed a bike and got on with the job and his fitness was the thing that made the biggest difference to him. Now he probably would have won if he'd been on a fast time trial bike, but it just goes to show it's more about the person and the engine than it is about the bike. Totally. And I would, um, I would absolutely agree with that. And I'd say, um, didn't Chrissy Wellington do her first Ironman on a road bike, mm. which she won? And I know, okay, I know you're talking sort of the extreme end of, um, talent and everything, but you know, you still have to go out and do the work. So yeah, she did her first Ironman on a road bike and only got a TT bike, I think, for going to Kona. So I think it's, it's well worth remembering, isn't it, that most races can be an incredibly intimidating place to be as you walk up to transition and see lots of incredibly expensive bikes around. But don't let that fool you into thinking that the people there are not incredibly friendly just because they've spent a lot on the bike. It can look really serious, but... The triathlon community in general is full of really nice people who really want to help people out. So just kind of get over the idea that you have to have loads of expensive kit, especially when you're starting out. Just go in and get stuck in and have fun. And, and that's the that's the spirit and attitude that everyone wants, isn't it, really? Uh, definitely. I, I did my first half Ironman on a road bike 
In fact, I did most of my, I did my first Ironman on a road bike. Yeah, um, me too. Didn't have a TT bike. And the first Ironman, I didn't even have nice wheels. Yeah. I just had, I had some clip on aero bars by that point. So I progressed slightly, but um, I think yeah, if you're in honestly, the UK, Will, especially like the two of the big races over here, Ironman UK and Ironman Wales in particular, arguably are more suited to road bikes than time trial bikes for the majority of people anyway, because of the, the nature of the hilliness and the sharp corners and things. Um, so yeah, shouldn't be a barrier, should it? Definitely, definitely shouldn't be a barrier. No. Not that it's not that it's my place to not discourage people from buying stuff if they want to. <laughs> uh, well, right. So just to just to wrap this up before the end of the show today, a, a couple of things for you all to be aware of. Um, you're listening to us now on maybe iTunes or Stitcher or something like that. We are now also listed on Spotify. So if you search for Oxygen Addict Triathlon Podcast on Spotify, and we're also, all the shows are up on YouTube every week as well. So it's probably going to be less relevant to listen to it on YouTube, but it is there. Definitely Spotify. I know loads of people are listening to their podcast these days on Spotify. So finally managed to get it sorted. It's very complicated, Hells, when you're a bear of little brain like me to get these things to work right sometimes. No, it's not. You've got to, it, I mean, it is, what I mean is, um, it is very complicated. I was trying I to say it's not about your brain. It's the fact that these things are complicated and and um yeah, especially if you don't have a background in yeah in anything in like you know, web doing. design yeah, or exactly. exactly. Then yeah. you've got to learn and you've got to teach yourself and yes, you can teach yourself so much, but actually if someone then goes, Yes, you just have to click that, you're like, Oh, who knew? Who knew? Yeah. Well, we're there now, which is great. So I use Spotify all the time and it's actually, I find it much more intuitive than the podcast player. So uh, yeah, so we're there. You can listen to us on there. So YouTube, Spotify, Stitcher, iTunes, any of that stuff, uh, you can listen to all the shows through that medium. Who knows? Maybe you'll be able to squirrel away and pretending you're watching training videos at work when actually you've got the YouTube up in the background. <laughs> just get some, just get some good headphones and um, yeah, hide away and um, and hit play and it's all fine. Um, Rob, the menopause special will be coming out over the next couple of weeks. Great stuff. Great yes. stuff. So watch this space for that. What else have you got going on this week, Hells? Have you got any news lined up? Uh, any more news lined up? We're going to be speaking to Joel Filial later. Filial. Um, Exciting stuff. And... That's about it, really, Rob. I think. Cool. I've got um, I've got a, an interview with Joe Skipper lined up. So, any nice. questions for him? You can fire them over to us as well. That'd be good to get some listener input for things we want to ask Joe. Fresh off his, I want to say seventh place at Kona. Although I'm not sure it was seventh or eighth. I think it was seventh. And absolutely smashing it in the pool down under at the moment, Rob. Yeah. He's living the life, he's isn't he? Good lad. He's he's he's, he's working hard. Great stuff. All right, well, listen, that's just about everything from us for this week then. Thanks very much for listening. Remember, you can check out our sponsors, precisionhydration.com, teamoxygenaddict.com, and fueledbycake.com. And um, remember, if you want to win a copy of that book, The Svelo Story to Make Athletes Faster, just get onto iTunes, leave us a five-star review, and then post a screenshot in the OATC Facebook group. So until next week, thanks very much, everybody. You've been listening to the Oxygenatic Triathlon Podcast. I'm Coach Rob Wilby. 
I'm Helen Murray. And have a great safe training racing week and enjoy the nights that are getting lighter. We'll speak to you all again soon. Cheers now. Bye.